2: Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Overspending on Amazon? Earn while you shop with Drop. Earn rewards on every purchase, online or in-store. Download Drop now and use code DROP11 to get $5 in points. Get rewarded for shopping today.
3: (laughs)
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. I'm
0: Christian Sager. And I'm Joe McCormick. And here we are with part three of our 2017 Ig Nobel Prize, Ig Nobel Prizes series, uh, where we're discussing the recipients of the 2017 Ig Nobel. If you haven't heard the first two episodes, you might want to go check those out first if you're unfamiliar with the prizes we introduced them in the first episode. But hey, if
4: you're here, you just want to jump right in. That's okay, too. Guys, we have already covered... Liquid cats, cave bugs with swapped genitals, didgeridoo therapy, crocodile gamblers, weird effects of twins taking selfies or, or just looking at their own faces, and then whether old man ears are big. I don't know if it can get any weirder than that.
1: <laughs> and, I, you know, before we get into the categories, I do want to again point out that the Ig Nobel Prizes, they come out every year. They're put on by the, uh, the publication, The Annals of Improbable Research. I will include a link to their website on the landing page for this episode, stuff to blow your mind dot com. Uh, be sure to check them out. They are a publication. They put out a lot of great content mm-hmm. about cool, weird and uh, occasionally hilarious, well, frequently hilarious uh, scientific studies. Uh, they're worth checking out. And we have to thank them uh, for putting out this content every year, drawing uh, everyone's attention to these unique studies so that we can highlight them.
4: Yeah, actually, and if you're really loving these episodes and you want to know more, you can watch their ceremony online when they gave the awards to all of these people for the articles we're talking about. Yeah, you're a big fan, right? Uh, <laughs> we're we're thinking pe- of
0: putting together a Christian Sager commentary track. Oh, man.
4: As people know from past Ig Nobel episodes, I've watched them all the way through. I didn't do it this time. It's a little bit painful. It's It's not my cup of tea when it comes to sense of humor, but I
1: love the research that they pulled together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so – What do we have for today? We have three left, one each, to to round out the 27 Igno Bells. What's what's first? I think, Joe, we have you uh, first with the nutrition prize. Let's talk about vampire bats. (laughs) Mm. Are they nutritious?
0: They sure are delicious. They're magically delicious. Yeah. So there are three species of bats that are completely hematophagous, meaning they can survive on blood as their only food. And these three species are... Desmodus rotundus, which is the common vampire bat. You'll find it all over Central and South America. Uh, uh, Diamus youngi, which is the white-winged vampire bat. And diphylla echodata, the hairy-legged vampire bat. <laughs> now, all three of these actually you'll find in different parts of Central and South America – To survive on a diet of blood, these bats are equipped with some pretty amazing equipment. They've got these razor-sharp incisors and canines. And first, what they do is they tend to clip away the feathers or hair of their hosts, you get like a free haircut out of it, uh-huh. and then puncture the flesh. So they got the sort of scissor-like teeth to clip away feathers or hair. They get a hole in you, and then they've also got this saliva laced with anticoagulant. So when they get it in the blood, it helps keep the blood flowing
1: instead of clotting. They're basically surgeons, really. I mean, they're they're, yeah. they're shaving the, uh, the, the 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 surface, and then they're making the incision, and they're using an uh, uh uh, they're basically drugging you so that you don't feel anything. We right. have
4: a whole episode about this, actually, about the. The physics of blood drinking as it relates to vampire bats and, you know, also fictional vampires. Yeah.
1: Well, since you
0: know that, you you guys probably know that they don't actually suck blood, but they sort of – They let, lap it up. Yeah, they let the blood pool and they lap it up or they let it flow into the blood funnels. Yeah. The <laughs> blood funnels on the tongue or the roof of the mouth – uh, so a blood-based diet is a rare and highly specialized way for a mammal to make a living. I would there...
1: say a te- it's a it's a terrible way for a mammal mm-hmm. to make a living. Like it is a yeah. difficult life. There
0: is a reason you don't see a whole lot of blood-sucking mammals. Uh, it requires weird, specific behavioral and physiological adaptations that are not easily turned toward other survival strategies. Basically, it's an extreme lifestyle. <laughs> and,
4: and and I'm just imagining that like these bats at the X Games. So. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's extreme, bruh.
0: Right. Like, I went all in on learning how to rocket skateboard and I can't do anything else. I never <laughs> learned math and now, <laughs> now I'm stuck with this as my career. Um. So, hematophagous bats are not able to store body fat and generally can't survive fasting more than a couple of days. And their bodies are also incredibly, incredibly efficient at eliminating waste products from their blood diet, such as urea and excess water. But because of this elimination efficiency, they're also highly susceptible to dehydration. It's hard being a vampire bat.
1: Yeah, I, I remember in, in the episode that Christian and I did, we talked, we we, we extrapolated this to a humanoid vampire. And we were basically describing this Nosferatu-like creature that would have to, like, barely drag itself into your room while you were yes. asleep yeah. uh, and start feeding on you. And it would be urinating at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and basically uh, uh, in a state of constant dehydration. Yeah, seeking yeah, bathroom in, breaks everywhere.
4: If I remember, I don't have the the time uh, quantities in my head, but they can only do it for a certain amount of time on specific animals before they're discovered, before you notice you've got one chomping on you. Right. And so they, they have to like be real quick about it and they only get like a little bit of blood plasma with each feeding. So they've got to feed a lot.
0: Yeah. Though with a lot of these, it's typical that they can only get one host per night. So I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a rough way to make a
4: living. That's why they're also skinny. Yeah. And hairy legged.
0: Yeah. Always on the cover of magazines. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first two species I mentioned before, they they find their blood in more diverse quarters. But the hairy-legged vampire bat, the third one I mentioned, Diphylla ecodata, is known as a bird specialist. Huh. That means it, it makes its foraging niche even tighter by surviving almost entirely or entirely on the blood of wild birds. Unless maybe that is it has to adapt. We'll see. So in the, in this 2016 study that got the Ig Nobel from the journal Acta Chiropterologica, you know, the study know, of bats, bats right? yeah. Okay. Uh, authors Ferdinanda Ito, Enrico Bernard, and Rodrigo A. E. Torres set out to study the diet of Diphila, this third bat I mentioned, the wild bird blood lapper. <laughs> In the habitat of the Catinga Dry Forest. Now, the Catinga is an ecoregion found in eastern Brazil, very different from the wet tropical rainforest of the Amazon Basin. The Catinga is this desert-like region filled with dry, thorny trees and scrub vegetation. It's often referred to as, like, thorn forest. And some parts of this region have been strongly disturbed in recent years by human activity, especially agriculture. As always, human presence in an, uh, and, and human agriculture in an ecosystem can mess up local wildlife. So the researchers reasoned that you would be able to see this disturbance of wildlife through changes in the diet of local vampire bats. If you move a bunch of farmers into a patch of Katinga, driving out and hunting many of the wild birds native to the area – would the local Diphyla change their lifestyle? Would oh, they okay. resort to preying on domestic mammals, maybe in farms like cattle, goats, or pigs? Now, here's a question for you guys. Let's say you want to study what a bat eats. How do you figure that out? Follow bats around? Well, you, that's kind of hard to do, isn't it? Maybe you make bat drones to chase them. Make a whole lifestyle <laughs> out of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, go thing... off the
1: grid, man. I follow bats. I mean, I've seen studies that, that look at bat behavior, and that it generally means you have to go where the prey is hangs out, Mm -hmm. and you have to just videotape the prey all night and then track what happens. But that would be
0: assuming what the prey is. What if you want to find out what the prey is? I imagine
1: that you go through guano. Yep,
0: there you go. So a common method of studying the diet of a bat would be to study the shapes that appear in its poop. So if it's a fruit-eating bat, you can look at the feces and see what kind of seeds and stuff like that you see. If it's an insectivorous bat, you can look for insect body parts. But if you want to study the diet of a blood-lapping bat,
1: how do you do it? Yeah, what does a vampire blood poop consist of? Well, I mean, it looks like soft poop.
0: Yeah, it's soft poop, but... Like, you can't identify what animal uh, some blood came from just by looking at it in poop. So yeah. enter DNA testing of guano. OK. So you can use polymerase chain reaction, uh, which is known as PCR, the PCR technique on vampire bat feces, to amplify fragments of degraded host DNA in the feces and determine what animal the digested blood came from. So that's what the researchers did here. They collected fecal samples monthly from May 2014 to January 15 from a cave occupied by a colony of Diphila echidata, which is the, the hairy-legged vampire bat, the, blood, the bird blood lappers, uh, which was surrounded by many cattle ranches and subsistence farms with a lot of goats in particular in the area. So it's the situation where their natural prey, the wild birds, have largely been driven out. You've got a lot of agriculture, and they're wondering, OK, are these things feeding on domestic mammals? instead of the birds they prefer in the wild. okay. So they preserved all these fecal samples, then they did their molecular analysis to look for DNA cues as to what species these bats had been gorging themselves on. Researchers found DNA from two species, Gallus gallus, the domestic chicken.
1: Oh, well, that makes sense.
0: And Homo sapiens, the domestic human being. Oh, man. These bats had been drinking human blood. And this is significant because while... People have gotten bat bites before. This is the first known evidence of vampire bats consuming human blood under natural conditions in the wild. Mm-hmm. And it contradicts the previous assumption that diphila echidata would only drink the blood of wild birds. In previous experiments, this had gone pretty far. For example, these bats have even refused to drink mammal blood when it was their only option in lab conditions. Given the choice between pig blood, goat blood, and nothing, they chose nothing.
1: Hmm. Huh. So the idea here was that they were bird specialists to the point that there was no going back. Right. Which is kind of the whole, uh, niche, uh, um, you know, uh, Character of the vampire bat itself is that it's a creature that has chosen or chosen it has it has gone down a very difficult road, yeah. and it's just making the best it can out of that uh, those difficult uh, circumstances.
0: Yeah, and they can and they can specialize in different ways. Like Rotundus drinks mammal blood, mm-hmm. but uh, but Ecodata does not drink mammal blood even when it's got no other choice except apparently when their habitat is disrupted and food sources are depleted, they'll make an exception, apparently not so much for goats or pigs, but for us.
4: Yeah, huh. so this is a consequence of our actions affecting their ecological area.
0: Yeah, and I think it's interesting to wonder like why these would generally not go for other mammals, but they would find
4: human blood acceptable. Well, it's maybe probably chicken. got a lot more plasma in it. It's all yeah. fat. Or yeah.
1: chicken, chicken farmers taste, taste like chicken.
0: It could be. Now, one thing mm. they found is that it looks like these bats cannot survive on mammal blood alone. So they yeah. can't just drink human blood and survive. But they can supplement but, their diet. Right. Okay. So they can survive on a mix of chicken blood and human blood. Uh, and so that's pretty weird. But it makes <laughs> me wonder what other animals might decide we are worth eating once we destroy their natural habitat and drive out their natural prey.
4: Huh. Hippos. <laughs> I think it's hippos that we need to worry about the most. Uh, I believe you guys brought up
1: hippos recently, right? In yeah. The first monsters. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, watch out! <laughs> they're going to get you. It's harder to imagine, certainly, the hippo uh, switching over like that. But I remember in our in our episode on bats, like that was part of the part of the really cool scientific uh, uh, theorizing is how did vampire bats come to drink blood? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you get into this situation of well, perhaps they were. Uh, they were cleaning up wounds of megafauna, or mm-hmm. they were preying on parasites of megafauna. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get into this position where the the uh, the organism eventually just cuts out the middleman. Why am I why am I eating these these blood uh, inflated ticks when I could just drink the blood of the uh, of, of the of the mammoth yeah. or, or what have you? Yeah, right. It's big enough; it won't notice. Yeah,
0: that's interesting. So we ask our questions. Why is it funny? Why is it important? Things are always funnier when you explain why they're funny. Uh, <laughs> this is funny because human blood is hilarious. And is it? <laughs> why, why is it important? Obviously, human incursion in, into natural yeah. habitats has consequences. We should think about what those consequences are. I think it's interesting that as far as I know, the people this blood came from have not been identified. Like I, I don't know who this – Who the humans supplying these bats with meals are, uh, but these bats are drinking human blood somehow. It's one
1: very anemic chicken farmer, i I mean, the other thing is it's funny because it's a a hairy-legged bat. Yeah. The hairy-legged bat just sounds hilarious.
0: Right. Hairy-legged bat in the Hendersons. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break, drink some blood, and then we'll be right back for more Igno Bells.
5: world's number one dad better than a world's number one dad coffee mug is an artisan cocktail in his hand. Make dad's Father's Day and Father's Day cocktails with all natural juices and bitters without making any mess at all. Visit bartesian.com backslash father to get $50 off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Artesian. Premium cocktails on demand.
3: Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have two percent cash back on purchases and zero percent interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
6: Your new home journey starts at Fisher Homes, where everything is red, white, and new. Explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community. Choose from a variety of experts. Designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at FisherHomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on
2: summer savings. What are you looking for in a new smart TV? 4K picture quality, high quality and immersive sound, a sleek design.
4: Devouring blood, which mm-hmm. sounds—I mean, I, I, somewhat appetizing. Maybe yeah. not the the best. <laughs> uh, you, are you guys
1: disgusted by the idea of drinking blood? I don't know. I mean, if you have a blood funnel, why not use it? Well, yeah. I mean, it, it's certainly fine for a vampire bat. I find that, but not for you. Yeah, I find the the prospect kind of disgusting. I, I mean, in the past, I'm not—I haven't been opposed to having pretty red meat. Yeah, and I think once a year I'll have have some sort of a like a, a steak that it has a, a fair amount of blood in it. Okay. But the idea of like drinking it, like scenes in movies where yeah. a human drinks blood, like I'm thinking of uh, I think the movie Kronos and also the, the oh, vampire yeah. movie Habit. Both had scenes in which someone drinks the juice out of a out of a a steak from the grocery store. You know, where they like they just drink the red liquid. We should clarify that's not blood; that's myoglobin. That's right. So they're not even doing it right. These poor vampires. So then, related to how disgusting that is to you, how do you feel about cheese? Oh, cheese is
0: awesome. Awesome. Yeah. 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 Is
4: there any cheese you guys won't eat? No. Me either. I'm not a big fan of cheese whiz. Oh well that's the that's
1: cheese that's a cheese only. product.
4: Yeah. Uh I love all cheese, even the really stinky cheese. Blue cheese, goat cheese, feta, you name it, I love cheese. It's part of my I'm a cheese addict. Mm-hmm. Uh my favorite is the smoked Osepik cheese that comes from sheep milk in Zakopane, Poland. It's Whoa. oh it's it so good. Great. It's yeah. really good. This next study is all about people being disgusted by cheese and it is called the neural Bases of disgust for cheese an fmri study haha huh. well you
0: know, that does make me think about how cheese is a is a largely cultural thing like there are cultural uh, cuisines that really do not include cheese at all
1: indeed i mean you go to a chinese restaurant you're not going to find a lot of cheese on the menu now that being said i believe there are there are some regional chinese cuisines that have dairy products in them, some form of cheese. But I tell you what, if part.
4: you wanted to put some shredded cheese on my lo mein, I wouldn't mind. Oh. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> that does sound kind of
4: gross somehow. Yeah, you can do anything gringo style. Just exactly. Cheese on yeah. Everything. Right?
0: Well, I'd ask Chinese listeners
4: out there, do you find cheese revolting? Let us know. So that actually comes into play here, not uh, specifically China, but regional, uh, you know, cultural tastes for cheese. Mm-hmm. OK, and it's coming up. But the researchers on this paper were specifically interested in studying disgust. And disgust as defined by Charles Darwin in 1872 as a basic emotion that's characterized by peculiar facial expressions, action of distancing oneself from the offending object, and distinctive physiological manifestations like nausea or revulsion.
1: You know, I, I, I have to say that when it comes to the cheese smell. And I'm I'm very picky about this. Like I don't like people talking about stinky cheeses. Mm-hmm. I I because I think you're you're putting a label on it that mm-hmm. is uh, that is daring everyone to find yeah revulsion. I agree. I just kind of use that you term because it, other people. Well, do. I mean yeah. it's used, fragrant I, cheeses. Yeah, I like yeah. fragrant cheeses. But at the same time, I realize that a lot of people use the term stinky cheese. Um, in a positive way, like that's a term of endearment for them. So I don't yeah, mean to maybe. judge your your, your language here. No, it's just I, – I don't really call them that either. It's just kind of what I've
4: heard people who yeah. are disgusted by cheese refer to. But,
1: but I have heard it used lovingly. Now, at the same time, I feel like the, the specific aroma of cheese, it is very contextual. So – uh, and I've and I even participated in sort of like mild studies of this, you know, uh, you know the kind of thing that they'll do at like World Science Festival, where everybody smells a tab of something. If you if you smell the cheese smell while eating cheese, it feels perfectly natural. If yeah. you smell the cheese smell while changing like your son's shoes of which uh, I have encountered this, it's revolting yeah, because that that's not where it should be.
4: Right. Yeah. 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 I, I
0: think you could even use just linguistic priming. Like if you smell blue cheese while you're thinking about blue cheese and that's all It probably smells good. If you smell blue cheese and somebody calls it armpit cheese, I think that will probably cause you to re- yeah.
1: recoil. Now, the, another case where I, I see something like this is with durian fruit. Durian yeah, fruit kind yeah. of smells like cheese. But a lot of people are really turned off by durian fruit because it is a fruit and it does not seem like it should have this aroma. Yeah, I, as many
4: of our listeners know, and you guys know, I grew up in Singapore. Durian's quite popular there. They make candy out of durian they do. In, uh, in East Asia. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, when I was living over there, you could get durian milkshakes from the McDonald's over there. Whoa. yeah uh, Are they good? No. <laughs> I, I, I find durian gross on, on multiple levels. It smells like urine to me, but then also, have you ever, like, uh, cut durian before? It's a strange object. Huh. It's like this big, spiny object. It's and got then these you...
0: lobes. Sort of... Yeah,
4: when you open it up, the insides of it look like the insides of a of a not a plant. <laughs> it, yeah. look, it
1: looks like a cow's organs just spilled out of this thing. Well, I think it should be classified as an outdoor cheese fruit. You know? Yeah, <laughs> because yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't eat it indoors necessarily. And this is from me. This is from a Western perspective. It's someone who hasn't grown up with it and have a cultural appreciation for it, but. I think I'm perfectly okay with it at an outdoor uh, scenario where I know that it is durian. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And if you want to experiment,
4: I think it's worth checking out as well. Try it, yeah. But here's the thing is you guys actually just like anecdotally talking about your your cheese experiences just now hit on a couple of the points that we're going to find in this study. Because these researchers focused on sensory factors and not just smell. And they also considered how disgust can be a conditioned aversion. So specifically, they were looking at disgust of food, and that was interesting to them because studies on food aversion are apparently rare. Huh. Uh and the reason why is because there's ethical issues associated with experimental induction of the gastrointestinal system. So if you cause somebody gastrointestinal pain as part of a study and then you're trying to figure out if they're a aver- you know they have an aversion to that food, there's some ethical issues. Huh. So
0: it's hard to get approval for studies that are designed to make people feel nausea.
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So They turned to cheese. (laughs) Their first task was to estimate what proportion of individuals are actually disgusted by cheese. And then they aimed to compare the brain activities of people with aversion to cheese with those who commonly eat cheese. And they used functional magnetic resonance imaging to do this. And from now on, I'll refer to that as fMRI. Their hypothesis was that several areas of the brain would be activated depending on if the participant was either pro-cheese or anti-cheese. And these people, these people we're talking about here, whether they're pro or anti, they claim to be able to detect cheese in a room solely based on its odor. Hmm. So they gathered 145 French men and 187 French women using newspaper ads and flyers. Then they asked these people to complete a questionnaire evaluating just general food items. And they broke them up into multiple groups of 15, which were either pro cheese or anti cheese groups.
1: There were anti cheese French people. It really breaks the stereotype,
4: doesn't this it? This is, this yeah. is important to this study and surprising, right? Yeah. The groups were matched in age, and the participants were checked for olfactory impairments and detection ability. So for stimuli, they used six cheese varieties, <laughs> blue, mm. cheddar, mm. goat, ah. gruyere, Ooh. parmesan, mm. and then is it pronounced tome? I am not. I don't, I don't know, know this one. Tome. I actually yeah. don't know that cheese. Huh. I don't know it either, but it's T-O-M-M-E. So maybe that's a French cheese we're unaware of over here. So they diluted these cheeses the odorants of them in mineral oil down to 10% in volume. And then five milliliters of that solution was absorbed into a squeeze bottle with a dropper. (laughs) Then they used an airflow olfactometer, to deliver a continuous stimuli that was synchronized with the person's breathing through a standard oxygen mask these participants could provide five logic signals with their hands so they had like <laughs> a little like controller uh, mm-hmm. and it basically indicated how pleasant or unpleasant their experience was and they also had their behavioral responses measured, their stimulation onset measured and then the trigger signals were measured from the MRI that was recording them. Uh They first tested this out while these people were in what they called a hunger state, with normal food odors, not just cheese. And then again with odors and then pictures followed up by them. So they wanted to see if, like, is is the odor accompanied by a visual going to make a difference here? The hunger state, what they meant here was that these people had only had a light breakfast of either tea or coffee and just one single slice of bread. And the researchers hypothesized that the anti-cheese subjects would answer far more quickly than the pro-cheese subject because they knew they disliked cheese. Okay? Here's what their findings were. That a higher proportion of people who disliked cheese existed than other food categories. It was 36.9% of the people they studied disliked cheese. Crazy. Some of these people reported that they had family particularity with cheese. In fact, that meant that up to six family members related to them also disliked cheese. The other foods that received low scores were mainly because of dietary habits, and this is interesting, like vegetarianism. Mm-hmm. So for instance, back to our blood thing, if you were a vegetarian and they misted a uh, steak ooze into your face, you wow. might have had a bad reaction to that in the same way some of these people did with cheese, okay? Okay. But there was no significant difference observed between the two groups, the pro-cheese and the anti-cheese, when they were just stimulated by odors only. So if they had cheese blasted in their face, there wasn't a difference. But if they had cheese blasted in their face and they saw pictures of the cheese, then there was a difference. So visual reference seems to be really important here. And that kind of ties back to what you guys were talking about earlier, right? Like what you're seeing, if it's your son's shoe and it smells like cheese, that's going to make a big difference, right? So what's interesting here is this goes against reports that odor has an emotional impact on memory. And it actually suggests that odor on its own is insufficient to trigger disgust reactions. Perhaps what's going on here is it's the subject's Conception of cheese, rather than the actual sensory properties of
1: cheese, that give it a disgusting value.
0: That's odd.
1: Yeah, isn't it? It's kind of. Fascinating. I wouldn't expect that. You know, I have to say, when when I am smelling my son's shoe and it smells like cheese, I mean, I'm kind of giving it away right there. I'm interpreting the smell as that of cheese in a place where cheese should not be. Yeah, yeah. it's the thing that should not be. Yeah, it's right. the monster. Odor. Whereas if I was thinking of it more appropriately. You know, what? If I was thinking of what I am actually smelling without bringing cheese into the scenario, it would be – perhaps it would be a different experience altogether. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know what you're talking about. So
4: that was just like their behavioral observations. Then they looked at these FMRIs and they showed that there was a stronger activation of the GPI slash GPE and SN areas of the brain in people – who dislike cheese. So, okay, that kind of went along with what they thought, that there would be some, you know, reactions there. They also found that a lack of desire to eat cheese was associated with a lack of activation in the VP area, which is a core brain structure in incentive motivation. Hmm. So subsequently, they propose that the motivation-related activation in our brains is suppressed in people who are anti-cheese because of their disgust for cheese. That just in general, they won't be motivated. So your brain doesn't get turned on. Yeah. Don't go get it. And it's not just about the cheese. It's about anything else that's around you. Wow. Yeah. So here, okay, you guys were talking about France and how this is kind of weird, right? Uh Yeah. Their survey showed... 6% 6% of the French population dislikes cheese more than any other food category. That's way lower than their finding of 36.9% in the lab. Huh. So they were like, wait a minute, what's going on? This is especially interesting because here in France, the country has the greatest variety of cheeses in the world and has the highest level of cheese consumption in the world. Yeah, I think
1: of France's cheese cheese city USA. Yeah, yeah like a, I've never visited France, but I know that If I get to one day, I will eat a lot of cheese. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like cheese capital of the
4: world. So this is fascinating. It seems that like more people actually are repulsed by the smell and visuals of cheese than report. They are. There's something going on here. They also found 60 percent of the people who said they dislike cheese, dislike cheese in all of its forms. It's not like they're just like, I don't like blue cheese. Mm -hmm. These 60 percent just don't like any cheese. 18% of the people who said that, they had a milk intolerance. So that makes sense. So in conclusion, they found that a higher than expected proportion of individuals are disgusted by cheese to the point that they can't eat it. So this is interesting. There's way more people, at least in this study and in France, we have to obviously do this culturally in different areas. But the disgust seems to be actually encoded into the brain and can subsequently suppress an individual's other motivations.
0: You know, I wonder how smelling cheese affects gambling behavior.
4: <laughs> there you go, right? You, you make people inhale the smell of blue cheese while they're gambling. You see what happens. So, okay, why why is this Ig Nobel funny? Well, of course, the idea of people breathing in cheese and other smells they hate is kind of amusing, right? Especially yeah. like they've got these oxygen masks on. Right.
0: It's the denatured version of it that's even funnier, that they like had to extract cheese odor and pump it into their faces. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. they
1: could have just put them in a mascot costume and they would have yeah. had the same effect, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but but also cheese is inherently funny. The word cheese yeah. has that like I I feel like there have been studies that have pointed this out that or at least there it has been pointed out that the funnier words uh the the, the, the most humorous words in the English language are going to have the chuck uh kind of a sound or the kh sound is going to be like clown cheese. Yeah. Clown cheese. There, there you go. go. That's oh, innately. Yeah. I wonder what
4: Pennywise's funny. cheese s- yeah. smells like. Yeah, I wouldn't want that cheese. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 9, clown cheese. Well, they had cheese. It plays into that a lot. That's probably why your mind went there. Yeah. So, but why is this study important? Well, it's what I said earlier, because it's really rare to find individuals who have the same type of food disgust. So to find that, like, 30, basically 37% of the population dislikes this one specific food is important. But also, it's really difficult to study this without triggering gastrointestinal problems. So they found a way to do this without, like, actually inflicting harm on these people. So that's my cheese report. (laughs) Why don't we take one more break? And then when we get back, Robert's got our last Ig Nobel study for us.
5: artesian premium cocktails on demand your credit card
3: should match your lifestyle at kemba financial
5: credit union choose a card with benefits
3: that work for you for a limited time all cards have two percent cash back on purchases and zero percent interest on balance transfers for a year apply at kemba.org restrictions apply offer ends June 30th 2024
6: your new home journey starts at fisher homes where everything is red white and new explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community choose from a Variety of expertly designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in-ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at FisherHomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer
2: savings. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have supervision, enhanced hearing, extraordinary reflexes, to be, dare we say, superhuman? Will Roku's new Pro Series TV Can't do any of that for you. But with a 4K screen, side-firing speakers, and a blazing fast refresh rate, it'll sure feel like it. Elevate your entertainment using all your favorite apps like iHeart and play all your music, radio, and podcasts with the new Roku Pro Series. Your senses aren't better. Your
1: TV is. All right, we're back. So we have one left, and it is the Obstetrics Prize. Are you guys ready for this? Uh, Bring it forth into the world. (laughs) All right, so I'm going to read you the title of the paper, and in doing so, I'm going to answer the question why the uh, the Ig Nobel Prize committee found this funny. Okay. Um, the title is Fetal Facial Expression in Response to Intravaginal Music Emission. Oh, yes. music emission? Yes.
0: That yeah. is – I don't think emission should be the verb for music. Shouldn't it be like playing
4: or – Well – Wait. Let's see if we can guess what this is about without (laughs) having – so, okay, I'm going to guess that this is looking at the faces of fetus in utero – Abs, your I don't know. You put like a Bluetooth speaker up against like the belly of the the mother or something like that.
1: Well, well just it says say
4: intravaginal.
0: You, yeah, so you are not
1: taking the premise far, far enough. enough. Yes. Okay.
0: Yeah, this sounds like a speaker is inserted through the vagina to play for the fetus in utero, and then they measure the fetus's facial expression somehow.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the basic idea here is that if music has an effect on the fetus, then and, and this is just like playing music outside of the body or right. touching the speaker to the belly. Uh, then wouldn't it make more sense to get the speaker closer to baby and then baby will react <laughs> even more? Okay. So, Sounds like somebody's trying to sell a product. Yeah, well, I was going to say, is there
4: a specific speaker that, that is built for this? Am I just oh, yes. woefully unaware of this? Yeah,
1: as the, uh, as the Ig Nobel Prizes point out, uh, there, was a, there was a patent filed in 2015. Oh, boy. And okay. you can currently buy a product called BabyPod. If you look them up, go to the BabyPod website. They even proudly have their Ig Nobel Prize like, stamp of approval there. Uh, to sell the product.
4: I have a look on my face right now that 37% of people in France have when they smoke blue
1: cheese. (laughs) Well well let's get into the into the study. Let's get into the science and and maybe it'll it'll change your mind a little bit. So studies have found that fetuses can hear sounds from the outside world while in the womb. Mm -hmm. Uh, They can even learn to recognize words in the in the womb and they can retain memories from this time after birth. So, in two uh, two thousand thirteen, University of Helsinki study published in PLOS One found that playing music while you're pregnant may influence your child's auditory system. It's just that's uh, just this this one study, but but I'm um, building up here. According to a two thousand fourteen Max Planck Institute study from 28 weeks that's the start of the third trimester in pregnancy uh onward the heart rate of the fetus changes when it hears a familiar song hmm. and from 35 weeks on there is a there's even a change in its movement pattern so the fetus is dancing in a, in a way in a yeah basically you're you're stimulating the fetus you're providing auditory uh, stimuli and it is reacting now based on you know my conversations with my friends who've been pregnant this
4: doesn't sound surprising to me
0: like people believe that they're the, the the fetus in utero can
4: hear music like while they're yeah, pregnant and that like we react to music too oh yeah no. at that stage i mean yeah, yeah. Not obviously
1: yeah yeah, I mean you see a lot of this, but playing music for the, the fetus and yeah. then of course playing music for the baby, uh, for the infant once it's born. I have born. friends who are very specific about like what the playlists were that they
4: played for their kids and like, <laughs> yeah. like Brian Eno I think was like a really big thing. Oh, well, yeah. okay.
1: I mean a lot of this relates to the parents. Like, yeah if, you're, yeah, if you're having to deal with a newborn baby or the stress of pregnancy, I imagine some soothing ambient music is going to yeah, be great. Exactly. I thought
4: you were going to say a lot of black flag.
1: <laughs> that's why I'm not allowed to have kids. <laughs> Now, uh, I imagine a number of you are thinking about the so-called Mozart effect here. Uh, to remind everyone, this was proposed in a, this was proposed in a 1993 science journal paper, um, and the idea is that play classical music, specifically Mozart, for a child, and it's going to uh, have give them cognitive benefits.
0: I remember hearing that people were. St- questioning the Mozart effect. There has
1: been a lot of questioning. it. Uh, <laughs> so, so first of all, everyone has to remember that the effect in question in the original paper, it stemmed from the study of teen students, not babies, not fetuses. And plus, the effect in question was merely an increase in performance on a specific spatial imagery task, and it only lasted for a few minutes. So for the most part, uh, the Mozart effect is largely dismissed as a myth. Okay. That being said... Again, if you were to play music for a fetus, which undoubtedly again, it's audio audio stimuli that that generates a response mm-hmm. and uh, and there are situations where that is certainly beneficial uh, wouldn't they hear it better if you put the speaker closer to the the fetus and that's where this study comes in. okay, I'm gonna read from you uh, this is the, the what I think is a pretty straightforward approach. Quote, The main aim of this study was to analyze fetal response to an acoustic stimulus emitted by a device which, due to its location and characteristics, might provide better sound intensity and quality. To that end, we used a device specifically designed to emit a melody or vibration from inside the mother's vagina. This location is closest to the fetus, so there are fewer obstacles to attenuate the acoustic waves. The secondary objective was to identify quantified fetal movements that could be associated with the acoustic stimulus. Hmm. So you know they're not getting into any situation here. You know, is, can we pipe music into the womb and make babies smarter, right. uh, et cetera? This is very much based on just. Stimulating the fetus with sound and/or vibration. This is not a, a
0: prelude to super babies, baby geniuses, too. R-
1: well, in a way, it's maybe a prelude to that, but but it's not intentionally a prelude to that. In the oh, paper. okay. So these were the findings. Quote: At present, our data appears to suggest two interpretations that intravaginal application with fewer obstacles could be more effective in transmitting music to the fetus and that the fetus might perceive these higher frequencies at an earlier age than reported to date. Now, Robert, you mentioned a product earlier. I assume we're getting to that here. Yes. uh, I mentioned the baby pod, which uh, I've seen with a price tag of around $133. And it is essentially a speaker device that you can plug into any musical device. You can plug it into your phone, MP3 player, a speaker with the appropriate jack. Turntable. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Turntable. What are you can you get a DJ uh, out yeah, there? Maybe uh it's a an, an FDA approved device uh and it's sold with the idea that it will quote stimulate vocalization for babies with music so oh interesting okay yeah, yeah so it's uh, it's going beyond this study and picking up on some uh, of the results of other studies that have made the argument that exposing the unborn child to music will help in uh, the the uh, development of vocalization got it so that they'll try to like make accompanying noises yeah okay one of the things here is that we are getting into the realm of not only uh, like parenting science, but parenting yeah. advice, uh-huh. and uh, I mean, even when something has a has a scientific basis to it, uh, it's often hard to really sort through it all. I get the feeling that
0: in parenting advice and parenting in general, there is a whole lot of
1: overinterpretation of tenuous scientific results. That is is what I get from my experience with it. And then, of course, on top of that, there are a lot of people with very firm ideas of like what is good parenting and what is bad parenting. Mm And, um, you you know, it's not always – it's generally not as simple as that for the most part. That being said, you know, regardless of what may or may not be the benefits, I can definitely see – you know, there's a benefit of connecting with one's growing child like this. You know that sure. you, that you're you're playing music and you can see a response. You know, there's something kind of magical about that. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as cognitive benefits go, I, I think that's that's something that if we were to to talk about it here, we would need to discuss it in more detail and draw in more studies. But there have been a lot of studies conducted. Uh, about this, uh, it's just difficult to really boil it down to, uh, you know, just a few minutes. Now, I do want to drive. I already hit on why this is funny, obviously, but as to why it's important, well, there is one, one potential takeaway here that has nothing to do with Playing a baby a song or you know Mozart f- music for babies and so so forth and that is that the researchers argue that the technology could also be used to evoke arousal responses of the fetus to stimulate movements to facilitate and shorten uh, obstetric ultrasound examinations. So the idea here is you're, you're you're trying to evoke responses in the fetus to determine its health mm-hmm. and if you could reach the baby you know more easily and yeah. perhaps earlier through this method then there there would there might be a reason to just uh, to to use it across the board.
4: Yeah. Well, that's definitely got some applications that are very important. Uh you know what? like now now I'm thinking of all these kinds of like ways in which like further research needs to be done. Like I wonder what midwives would have to say about this given they're like you know, experience and matters.
1: And I would be very interested to hear from anyone who's tried out the baby pod or, or if there's another similar device and just hear from you, what your experiences were. Yeah. Well, the best way
4: to do that, although if you want to do it privately, this might not be the best way, but one way to do that is to reach out to us on social media and you could do that on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram. What you could do is also go to our website, where there's lots of potential music to play for babies on there.
1: Why? Because Robert blog posts all the time about space music. Oh, yeah. There's some Eno in there. Yeah. So, yeah. Definitely some good a- ambient selections for babies. DJ food for the unborn. Yeah. Um, you know, there was... Ooh, what's the name? There was an early synth guy that I've covered on there before that actually, that that did, uh, there's like a compilation of his work for babies. Oh, so was, wow. Like early synth. I can't recall the the artist offhand. I'm sure it'll come to me later. Hey, and
0: of course, if you'd like to get in touch with us directly, as always, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. you.
6: your style to life at the lifestyle design center are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead fisher homes has options for those too. fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings
2: what are you looking for in a new smart tv 4k picture quality high quality and immersive sound a sleek design